Amen. Good morning, Grace Hills. How you doing? Good. My name's Simon. I am one of the pastors here at the church and grateful for you joining us. If you're new, that's who I am. Those watching online, thanks for watching online. Glad you could join us this morning as we worship the Lord. A um, couple quick things uh, before we get going. Obviously, there's been a lot going on. We were kind of singing through that and praying through that this morning as um, Mark was leading worship about the, some of the tragedies that have happened. And it's just been, you know, a couple of weeks of just a lot of hard things whether that's in Buffalo, whether that's here in town, whether that's in Texas, um, there's a lot of emotions and things behind that. We can also know that that can lead to fear, that can lead to anxiety for those uh, just thinking about them. There's a verse of that to be encouraged for those that love and worship Jesus. In 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for, we, for our God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love and a spirit of power and a spirit of self-control, right? We know that this is not the end. This is not all there is. We also know our God is control. We know that we have a hope beyond this world of whatever may happen. So we can press into the darkness because we have light. We can press into those things because God is bigger than anything that would happen here. I also want to just let you know, I want to thank you for those that have been signing up to serve on our security teams. We've been getting that going. We're taking names. We're getting some things together. We're going to be having a meeting soon. Uh, if you didn't know about that, you're more than welcome to just write on the, uh, the tear-off in the bulletin security, and we'll take some more names, and we'll uh, answer back with you and let you know the dates on the things that are happening. Uh, but I want to switch gears. I want to move into our sermon for today because we're starting a new series. It's Conversations with Jesus. Uh, I have a friend. His name's Matthias. I worked with him in Seattle, and he had this saying about me all the time. And the same is this. You've never met a stranger. He said that about me constantly. I like to talk to people. Uh, if you've been around me, you've probably noticed that I talk with people. I stop. I'll have conversations. I don't have a problem with that. To the embarrassment of my children most of the time. Just, oh, you're in line? I'm in line. We're good friends now. It's just a weird thing that happens in my life. But when I moved to Seattle six years ago, my friends told me, hey, you're probably going to have a hard time with this thing called the Seattle freeze. And I'm like, oh, is it because it's so cold and so wet that it's like, it's a thing? You're like, no, you don't understand. The Seattle freeze is a, uh, a personality trait of people in Seattle. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to engage you, they won't look at you, and they'll ignore you. Now, they'll talk to your dog, but not you. That's happened on multiple occasions to me. And so I'm like, that's weird, no way. So I'm a friendly guy, and I, hi, how you doing? Nothing. Hi, how you doing? And it just happened all the time. And I'm like, this is a real thing, and I hate it. And so what do I do? Well, being that I'm a rebellious person, I, I helloed them harder. Hello! Look at me! You know, it's like... I need that attention so bad. <laughs> and so you got to start asking, like, maybe you've encountered this. Maybe you've seen this. Why would people not want to engage in conversation? Why do they not want to talk with other people? Well, here's the thing. When you have a conversation, you're letting someone into your life. Even if it's for a second, even if it's eye contact, there's a moment that you have where you engage someone on a very real level of, I'm a human being, you're a human being, you're made in the image of God, I'm showing you dignity and respect in that moment. And you start to let them in, depending on how long the conversation is. There's also vulnerability that's attached to that, isn't there? So depending on how long your conversation goes, you're going to start to tell them about things of you. 
Are they going to judge me? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to say that I'm wrong? Are we going to get into some verbal confrontation? Are they going to think that I'm some kind of weirdo? Like there's all those things that go through based on how long you speak with somebody. Here's the thing. This is just what Jesus did, isn't it? He came to earth to be a part of our lives, to have a personal interaction and personal conversations with us. He wanted to have that one-on-one personal interaction. He wanted to engage us where we were, that he would speak with men and women all throughout his ministry, right? And as he did that, we see that Jesus was doing this thing that I, I keep, I'm astounded by. He is, he's continually breaking down cultural Social, political, class, and gender barriers all the time. He's constantly doing that. That he has a world, uh, the world's established these different, these different barriers in life. And Jesus is like, yeah, I don't really care. I'm going to push through all of those. And why does he do that? Because he's bringing us to a level playing field is what he's doing. He's saying that because of sin and what it's done in this world, we have all been separated from God, so we are all in need, and that's the baseline for everything that we have in life, that we are separated from God, that we don't have a relationship with Him, and Jesus comes so we can understand the great need that we have because of sin so we could be connected to the Father. And what he does is he wants to press into the lives of these men and women. He wants to show them the face of God. And he's having these conversations with them. There's this other thing happening at the same time. That he's having conversations with us. He's talking to us as well. He wants us to hear who he is and why he speaks the way he does. See, he's meant, he, he came to show us who he is. And how we can be in relationship with the God of the universe. So in this series, for the next eight weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a lot of different conversations that Jesus had with different individuals. And we're going to zoom in and zoom out of different books of the Bible. And so we're going to you know, clearly be in the Gospels because that's where he spoke. So we're going to do that, okay? And you'll see that some of these conversations are short. Some are kind of concise. Some just get to the point really quick. Others are really long. We're in a really long one today. <laughs> it's 45 verses. You know, you write things down, you don't realize, oh, that's a long, really long passage. You're like, he always reads the passage. Is he going to read all 45? No, I'm not going to read all 45, but what I am going to do is this. I'm going to tell the story of what took place in this particular section of Scripture, and I'm going to zoom in on the Scripture at different points where the conversation is taking place so you can see exactly what Jesus is saying in this particular situation. So where I want you to turn to, if you want to follow along, is in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 45, and you kind of have that open, I'm only going to jump to one other passage today. So we're going to stay in there. So if you want to open that up, have that ready so you can see where I'm at, make sure I'm not making things up, that I'm not saying what I want to say. But here's the thing. We need to understand the background of this conversation to move into it. Context is key to understanding Scripture. If we want to know what's being communicated, what's being said, we need to know the context, the environment of how that conversation took place and how the people would have responded in that time and in that age. And so where we start this conversation is Jesus is in Judea. So he had just been in Jerusalem. He kind of moved just, just outside of the city in some of the little towns and villages that were surrounding there. And we're told that the Pharisees found out 
that Jesus was having more disciples follow him than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of preparing the way. He was getting things ready, and there's a lot of people that are following him. But now that Jesus is on the scene, we see that more people are starting to follow Jesus, and the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus had to say. They didn't like what he had to teach. And so at this point, he's going to go up north to Galilee. Okay, so that's where he's going to go, the Sea of Galilee. Maybe you've heard of that. That's where he's going. Now, there are two routes to get to Galilee in that day and in that age. There's one that's more of a direct route that'll get you there in probably about two days. Okay, that's already up. So you've got Jerusalem down there. That's where he would have started, okay? And so it would have taken about two days. So he could go straight up through um, Samaria up to Galilee. Or he could go over the Jordan River. (laughs) through the woods to grandmother's house, he'd go. And he goes up and around. It's an extra two days journey to go around to get there. Someone say, well, which way did he take? He took the direct route. Well, Jesus is smart, but is that a big deal? It's a very big deal. It's a very big deal because we need to understand why we have this other route that would take place and why almost every single Jewish man and woman would take the indirect route to get to the Sea of Galilee, why they would go there. So, To get there, we need to kind of know a little bit of history. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time laying some foundational things. I'm going to throw some verses out. You can grab those, write them down, look them up later if you want. But here's the thing. So the Jews were captive in Egypt. God frees them, right? He says, I'm going to give you this land flowing of milk and honey. It's going to be fantastic. It's It's called the promised land. It's going to be the place that I'm going to give you that you will become a great nation. So he gives them this land, and it's great, and then we get King David, and he rules, and that's really great, except for a couple hiccups in the way, and then his son comes along, King Solomon, he builds the temple, kind of finishes the work that needed to be done, and then Solomon dies, and everything goes sideways, and the kingdom is divided into two parts. There's the northern kingdom, okay, and then there's the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is known as Judah, the... um, Northern kingdom is known as Israel. Ultimately, that would become Samaria. That's what that would become as that would go down the line. So we need to understand, we can go back to the map actually. Um, Who are the Samaritans? Who are these people and, and why is it important to us understanding who they are? So the Samaritans were the people that inhabited the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? And so what ends up happening is that in 2 Kings 17, we find that they weren't following God. They weren't listening to God. So God's going to send this group of people in. We just studied about them, the Assyrians. He sends the Assyrians in to take them, cat them. They, they imprison them. They pull them out, but not everybody. They left a remnant in the land. You may say, well, why would they leave a remnant in the land? Well, you don't take over a land and then leave it vacant because then what's going to happen? Someone else is going to take it, right? So they leave a a number of people, Jewish men and women there, and then he brings in a bunch of other foreign people that they had captured over the years, and they bring them in to occupy the land. Now you may think, what's the big deal with that? With that, they brought all of their gods, their fake gods, their fake religions, their fake idols into there. And what ultimately ended up happening is that they started intermixing. The Jewish people started intermixing with all these other people. And with that came this weird mishmash, pish-posh conglomerate of religions that they all kind of boiled together. And so they were still like understood the law of Moses, but then they were also doing all this other stuff on top of it with all these idols. And we know that God says, you're going to worship me, you're going to worship me alone. 
Okay? And so that's one of the things that ended up happening. So the Samaritans were this partially Jewish, uh, who partially followed the law of Moses, but also worshipped idols. So why did the Jews hate the Samaritans? Well, one of the things was as soon as that started happening, the Jews from the southern kingdom would go up and say, hey, like, this is wrong. Don't do this. Don't worship these false idols. The, the Lord told us, don't intermarry in this because it's going to lead to all these problems with the kingdom. They hated the fact that they changed the law of Moses, that they weren't worshiping the one true God of the Bible. There is racial tension between the true Jews and the half-blood Jews. It's very much mudbloods and purebloods, just like in Harry Potter. That's very much what it's like. And it was like, I don't get it. It's okay. Watch the movie. The Jews, they saw this land as their land. It was the promised land, right? They said, this is our land that God's given us. And now we've got these guys that aren't worshiping the one true God. We want that land back. We want it to be God's land. They didn't want to share it with all these different foreigners that had come in and had kind of defiled it. So then this other thing happens where the southern kingdom all of a sudden, they don't start listening to God. They're not following God. And so God sends in another group of people. And those are the Babylonians, okay? The Babylonians take them captive for seven years. In that time, like they just trash the city. And so there's a book called Nehemiah, all about rebuilding the city. So as they come back after seven years of being in exile, they come back to their city and they want to rebuild it. The Samaritans at that point actually offered to help. Hey, we'll help you rebuild the city. And they're like, no, we don't want you and your false idol worship here. We're not going to have you help build the temple and build the walls. We're not going to have you be a part of who we are. And so they reject them. And the Samaritans took that so well, right? They're like, oh, thank you. No, they were angry. So we see in Ezra 4 and Nehemiah 4, they start a campaign to try to shut it down. Like, I don't want you to rebuild. If we can't be a part of it, we're going to shut it down. And then what we find is in Nehemiah 13, this crazy thing happens. It's very much Romeo and Juliet. Is that the grandson of the high priest of that time ends up marrying a Samaritan woman. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? Like, a lot of drama I'm finding as I'm going through this. And so he marries this woman, and Nehemiah is like, what are you doing? You're defiling the worship. You're defiling what we're doing. You're, you're intermarrying with someone who has false gods that they worship. You can't do that. So Nehemiah is like, you're out. Kicks them out. And he, so the grandson goes up to Samaria, and he's, you know, he's given the story to his father-in-law. What's happening? His father-in-law says this, hey, why don't you build a temple just like the one in Jerusalem, and you can start your own priesthood. It'll be great on Mount Gerasim. So that's where that's at. They build this temple that's very much just like the one that God gave the Israelites. They build this place and they start doing this weird mishmash false worship of who God is and how they should live. And so this is how this starts to play out. And so this is solidifying the, the divide between the southern Jews and the Samaritan neighbors up to the north. And as time goes on, it just gets more and more aggressive. It's like the Hatfields and McCoys, right? It just gets worse and worse. So the Samaritans, they build their temple, and it's there, and they're not happy about that. As we move closer to the time of Jesus, the Samaritans start aligning themselves with the Jews' enemies. Like, hey, we're going to be on your side, and we'll see if we can overthrow them and get that land too, and get that temple. Like, they start doing all this stuff, so they're angry about that during the Maccabean Rebellion. 
And then about 110 years before Jesus comes, uh, one of the the Jewish, the southern Jews came up. His name was John. He goes up and destroys the Samaritan temple, just decimates it, and then ransacks all of Samaria. So they clearly aren't happy about that. And so then, a little after Jesus was born, the Samaritans decided that we're going to get back at you. So what do they do? They grab a bunch of human bones, and they go, they sneak into the temple, and they scatter human bones everywhere. You may be like, that's strange. A, that is strange. That's odd. Why do they do that? Because it makes the temple unclean, and they can't worship God. So there's this tension back and forth and back and forth. And the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews at all. They're trying to figure out there are these two areas. There's a temple here and a temple here. Who's right? Can you feel that tension? Like There's a lot going on there. So they're like, we don't want to go through your city. We don't want to go by your temple. We don't want to go with anything to do with you whatsoever. So we're going to take two days to go all the way around. And Jesus says, hey, let's go straight shot. And so there he goes. And this sets up the conversation that we're going to have with Jesus at this well with this Samaritan woman in the town of Sakar in Samaria. So Jesus comes in. He sends his disciples away to go get some food. And he's going to sit down by this well. Now, this well has a lot of significance uh, to the Jewish people. And it would be both parties. They would both recognize because of Jacob was there in Genesis 29. This is where he meets Rachel, okay? He's like, oh, this is great. God's chosen man meets a woman. Once again, God's chosen man, Jesus, meets a woman at this well. And he sits down and he says this to the woman. Give me a drink. Now, Uh, There's already a lot of problems here. One, you're in a city that you shouldn't be in. Two, you're sitting at this well and you're asking a a Samaritan to get you some water. And three, it's a woman. In that day and in that age, men did not talk to women like that alone. There was a whole thing about reputation and culture and what that would look like. And there's a lot of things that are inferred with those kinds of interactions. And so you wouldn't do that. That's something you normally wouldn't do. And her response even plays into the history lesson that I just gave you in verse 9. It says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, she gets it. He gets it. They all understand the situation. They all know that there's some tension here, and they're all playing into it. And what Jesus does is... I love this. Jesus is going to flip the conversation. He's going to point to something greater. This is a common thing that Jesus does over and over and over again. He takes a physical thing to point to a spiritual thing. You may say, like, why is he doing that? Because our physical needs fail in comparison to our spiritual needs. And you may be going, I don't get it. Well, let me help you understand. So if we're talking about our physical needs, where we are now, this life that we have, that we exist in, is temporal, right? There's a beginning and that there's an ending. Let's say 110 years, because we have people here that just keep going farther than the, the dates that I pick. So I'm picking some dates that are far out. 110 years, that's a good run. The spiritual is eternal, right? It's eternal. Which one holds more weight? Which one do you want to be more concerned with? This 110 years here or eternity? Like, do you understand the weight and why Jesus is like, this is more important. This has more legs. It has more importance to your life. And in verse 10, he's going to say this. 
if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he says this thing, like, if you even understood at all who I was, you'd be asking me for water. You'd be asking me for this, this, this living water that's different than everything else. But she doesn't get it still. She's still focused on the physical world and the physical things that are happening. It's like, she's like, you don't have a bucket. You don't have a rope. How are you going to get the water? The well's really deep. Are you greater than Jacob, the guy who dug it? Like, here's a hint. The answer is yes. He is greater than Jacob, like by a lot. And so Jesus is going to start to pull back the veil on what he's talking about and slowly give her little clues so she can start to follow along with what Jesus is saying. In 13 and 14, he says this. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's like, this water is different. Like, you got this water, you drink it, a couple hours go by, you want more. The water that I'm going to give is so different than you could ever imagine. Now, water, this water leads to eternal life. And, and you need to understand something. Like, the idea of water is, is equated with life, right? So we look at the Garden of Eden. There's this, there's this water that flows out of it. And what happens? The water springs up, the water moves out, and it starts to bring life as it goes out. It turns into streams, it turns into rivers, and it, and it makes pools of water. And wherever water goes, life flourishes, right? So water is related with life. It's connected to that in a way that we need to understand, even more so in a desert community where it's scarce. Water stops flowing, people start dying. That's the reality of what happens. He said, this is a spring, a spring that overflows, and it's going to do more than you could understand. So Jesus is saying that the, the water that flows from him, it gives eternal life, and that life flows to others around you and, be, and brings life to them as well. And by the end of this story, that's exactly what's going to happen to this woman. And so I'm going to tease that out. I'm going to wait. I'm going to come back to it. So the response from the woman is, is interesting. It's, there's a clue there that we should understand. So we want to always be kind of like detectives when we read the Bible and slowing down and reading it a little bit more carefully. Don't shoot through the Bible because you're going to miss all these great details. And it says this, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. See, there's a... That, that or is really important because it's telling about who she is and why she's there. You need to start asking, why was this woman in the middle of the day getting water? Like, what's going on in her life that's causing her to do that? Because, you see, in this culture, you would either get water at two different times. Any guesses when they would be? Morning? In the evening. Why? Yeah, it's hot in the middle. I don't care where you live. It's always hotter at noon. That's just what it is. And so in the morning, it's not as cool. You're not going to exert as much energy. It's not going to be as laborious. In the evening, it's the same way. You get some in the morning, you go through it, you get some in the night so you can get through the evening, right? 
It's a time where all the women would come together and they would congregate and they would be in community. They would spend time together, that they would talk about what's going on in their lives, how they're doing, where they're struggling, maybe how they can be prayed for, maybe um, what's happening in neighboring villages. All those things are going on and there's this communal connection point that's taking place, yet this woman is not doing that. So there's something that's going on in her life that's causing her not to be a part of community. See, Jesus knows her situation. He knows everything. He understands her deepest brokenness in life. And this conversation about water is just a springboard to engage her with where she is in her life and the pain that she's dealing with. And in verse 16, Jesus says this phrase right here. She says, I want this water. How do I get it? And he says, go, call your husband and come here. Sounds like an odd thing to say. But this is where Jesus always goes. He goes to our heart. He goes to our brokenness. He goes to our failures. He goes to where we are not where we want to be. Where we've strayed from God. Where we're not following what he would want for us. And she replies with what I would imagine is a bit of shame and regret and guilt is, I have no husband. But Jesus doesn't let it sit there. That's not going to be enough for him. And so in verse 17 through 18, he says this. says, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you Uh, now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. He just calls it out. He's like, here's the situation. So he's doing something where he's saying, like, I know about your life. I'm more than who you think I am. I understand where you're coming from. I can relate to you. He's not saying it because he's trying to make her feel bad. He's not trying to be mean. He's not cold-hearted by any stretch of the imagination. But he knows that she is a slave to the guilt and the shame that she's had in her life. He understands that she's an outcast from the community because of the choices that she made on her own and probably some that were made to her, right? So there's both of those things in conjunction happening. That she is now reliant upon this man whom she's living with in in a non-married relationship. This is where she is in life. She's in this stuck spot in life where she can't get out. And in that day and age, a woman could not be on her own like that. She would need a man to live with, to have protection, to have food, to have money. This is the way the society was set up during that time. And the brokenness is being brought to light. All those things that we try to hide in our life that we don't want to talk about, that we want to bury deep down, that we don't want anyone to know about, Jesus just threw a huge spotlight on it. He's like, there it is. Why? Because sin must be addressed to understand the grace that is going to be given, to understand the magnitude of the great love of the Savior who forgives sins no matter how horrible and ugly they are. He needs her to understand that he is going to free her from that sin, from the results of sin, and that he is a restorative savior, that he restores things back to the way they're supposed to be. Now, what she does next is is funny because I think we all do this. 
And so anytime we have our brokenness, our failures, and our sin exposed, what do we do? Pew, pew, pew. We deflect, right? We're always trying to like, well, let's talk about something else. I don't think I want to talk about this. I'm now uncomfortable. I feel weird. I feel very vulnerable. I don't want to talk about this. Let's talk about the weather or politics. And that's really where she goes. Not the weather, but she goes to politics really quick. And so what does she say? She says this in verses um, 19 through 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So what does she do? She brings up a hundred and hundred and hundred year old debate that no one solved. Says, well, golly, we have this temple here. Should we worship here? Should we worship there? Trying to muddy up the conversation, muddy up the waters, go, well, I guess we'll never know. And then that would be the end of it. And she can go back to her life because that sin was exposed and it'll never be brought to light again. Don't we do the same thing all the time? We're afraid to be in community because someone might ask, how are you doing? And you might actually tell them how you're really doing. You're like, what are, what's going to happen? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to look down on me? Are they going to think that I'm some horrible person? Are they going to say names at me? Like, you see, like, that's what's going on here. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to flip her view completely upside down on what this idea of work. So he's, like, actually going to answer the question and then continue on with what he's trying to do. And so in 21 through 24, this is the answer that Jesus gives her in regards to where should we worship. It says, but Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is for from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is here now where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that's what he says. That's his answer. He's like, this debate that you want to bring up is just about to be over. It's not even going to be a debate anymore. Like, it's not going to be a temple thing. I'm going to change everything. And our worship will no longer be a place that we go, but it will become a people that are filled with the presence of the Lord and we can take our worship everywhere in the world. That God is spirit. He's not this, like, I'll say it all the time. I like that we can come here to this nice building. This is not the church. We are the church. Okay? This building can burn to the ground and we can still be the church. And he's saying that, right? Like, God is spirit. He is everywhere and he will take residence in our hearts. And we will take God and worship everywhere we go. That we will be able to engage the world with that worship. That the world would see who he is. And as we are filled with the Spirit, what do we bring? Truth. We bring the truth of the one true God that has salvation for all that would call on his name. Now, as Jesus is speaking on this, some things start to happen. She says this. Well, all right. There's a Messiah that's going to come, and he'll straighten all of this stuff out. Like, you're saying some good stuff, but the Messiah, the Christ, he's going to go ahead and clarify all of this stuff. It's all, when he gets here, it'll all be good. And in verse 26, it's actually a really powerful verse. Um, This is the first time that Jesus does this, actually, which is like, 
really important. We'll talk about that in a second. But in verse 26, he says this. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm that guy. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. The first person that Jesus says that he's the Christ to is a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan and a woman. Like, that's just crazy in that day. Like, can we just, like, pause on that for a second? Like, why would he do that? Why would Jesus pick her to be the first person that he shares that he is the Messiah? He is the Christ. I am the one that you've been waiting for. I am the one that was promised. I am the one that will heal the world and will bring you back to the Father. Why? Because God has a heart for the marginalized, for the outcast, for the lost, for the broken, for those that are hurting, for those that are trapped by their sin. And he is showing the world that I have come to save those that are so far off. Like they got it, but they were just completely wrong. He's like, I love you. I want you to know that you have value. You are important. You think that she felt important as a person with the decisions in her life? You think that she felt valued? Do you think that she felt like there was something good about her at all? And yet God came to her and met her at that place. He said, you have value because you are an image bearer of God. And you are loved and you are lost. And the Father cares for you and sent me to bring you this message of hope so that you would know that you are important to him. Jesus claims his deity and rule and reign as the Savior and the Christ of this world in that moment. Some say, well, Jesus never thought he was. No, he does, right here. There's a verse. Highlight it. Mark it down. That's important for us. He is God incarnate. And these two things happen right after. One is that we see that um, the disciples show back up. And it's funny. I'm not going to go into all the interaction. They show up. They're like, it says, they didn't say it out loud, but they were all thinking like, what are you doing, Jesus? Why are you talking to her? She's the enemy. They're all the enemies. Shouldn't we like burn this place up? Like, isn't that what we should be doing to show them how bad and wicked they are? And Jesus has some words for him that I'm, I'm just not going to get there today. And then this other thing happens is that she like gets up. She leaves her water jugs and runs into town telling everybody what happened. Um, here's what's going on in this moment. <clears throat> Jesus had a conversation with her. She sees who he really is. He opens her eyes to the truth that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that salvation can only come through. She runs to the city to tell everyone what just happened. Now, remember, remember who this is. This woman is a lady who had five husbands living with some dude right now, an outcast from community, full of shame and guilt. She's no longer a slave to that. She's been freed. She has no more guilt. She has no more shame. She's had this personal conversation, this personal interaction with Jesus, and she believed that he was the Messiah and the Christ, the one that saved her, and it made her completely new. So before, she was fearful to go get water, right? Now she is fearless as she runs into the center of town, screaming at the top of her lungs, this is the guy, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the one we've been waiting for. He told me everything about my life. 
You need to believe and hear and know he has come to us today. That's huge. Like, here's the thing. Jesus transforms us. And she just wanted everyone to know. She throws everything in the wind. She wants everyone to know that she, what it means. Like, I used to be hopeless. I used to be alone. And now I am the town's biggest evangelist that's here. I love that. This is what happens when you meet Jesus. You want everyone to know. I love new Christians when they come to faith because they're like, they're just so excited. I'm like, did you hear about Jesus? Do you know about Jesus? This is Jesus. It's like, okay, that, that person's making you coffee. That's the landscaper. Like, you're just talking to everybody about Jesus because you've experienced forgiveness. Your chains have been taken off. You have been made free because the Savior died for those sins in your place. And if you proclaim him as the Christ and the Messiah and follow him as the Lord of your life, you too can have your sins forgiven and be freed. That is the beauty of the gospel. What we see is that she, she tells these men and women in town about Jesus, that he's the Christ. And it says that many in the town believe. That's really good news. And then as these people believe, they said, Jesus, don't go. Stay. And you know what I love? It's just a short little line. He stays for three more days. And then it said, many more believe Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. They placed their hope, their life in the life of Christ. And this town was transformed because they had a conversation with Jesus. What I love about this story is all these things that are happening here. Things are being restored. First, the woman was restored to God, probably the most important restoration that needed to take place in this story, restored to God. Then she was restored back to community. We're meant to be in community. Like the church is the representation of God's people coming together in community, living in a way that shows the world what it looks like when we love and worship Jesus Christ. The other thing is her shame and guilt were forgiven. She was, it, was, it was like, I'm free. I don't have shame. I don't have guilt. Yes, those things happen, but I'm a new creation. It was no longer this uh, us versus the Jews in that moment, right? There wasn't this weird tension between the two areas, at least for the, that group of people. But God was bringing back together his people in that moment. And she was also restored. And because of that, she had a purpose, she had a purpose to go tell others about this, what this new life looks like, who this man is, that all would need to know that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that saves, he is the one that forgives, he is the one that brings eternal life. The disciples saw this, that Jesus has no boundaries. No boundaries of class, location, history, male, female. None of that. And as we see, that Jesus is leveling the playing field for all of his children because all are welcome to come to him and worship him as Lord and Savior. That they would turn from their old life. They would face Jesus and follow him. Now, I teased it out a little bit before about the fact of living water and being a blessing to others. But this is, this is what happened, right? That she receives the living water from Jesus. She has this living water, this eternal life now that wells up in her like a spring. The spring just keeps bubbling and overflowing. And what happens? She then brings life to her community because it overflows from her like rivers and streams that flow out of her. And wherever that water goes, life abounds. Abounds. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't 
me no English well. <laughs> but that, do you see what's going on? That that pours out of her, and as it does, this whole area is blessed greatly. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30 says this. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know what you're a slave to, what controls you. Maybe it is, it is guilt from the things that you've done. Maybe it's guilt from things that were done to you. Maybe it's shame that you feel that people have done things to you or you've done things that have brought shame upon you, your family, whoever it may be. Maybe you're controlled by others and their views of you and where your identity lies. Maybe, maybe you're controlled by anger in your life that causes you to act in ways that you wish you wouldn't. Maybe there's lust in your heart and every time you think you, there's freedom there that there's not and that it's drawing you to something. You feel like you're chained and a slave and you cannot escape that thing. Maybe it's an addiction to some kind of substance in your life, whether that's alcohol or drugs of some sort. I, I don't know what it is. But what I'm telling you is, as we look at this story, what she did is she realized that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was giving her new life, and because of that, it transformed the way that she lived, that we call upon the name of Jesus to forgive us, and it says that he forgives us, that we can lay those things down at the foot of the cross and know that we are no longer slaves to him, that the shackles have been removed, that we can move in the way that we were designed to be all the way back in the beginning. This is the gospel that he's saying, I understand that you have all these heavy burdens in your life. You can't carry them. They're too heavy. Let me, let me carry them. Let me carry them to the cross. Let me die in your place. Let me take the penalty that you deserved. Let me have the wrath of God satisfied through my work on the cross. And let me give you my righteousness. And you and your soul can have rest. How well do you think this woman slept that night? It was probably the best sleep she's ever had in her entire life because her soul was at rest because she had given it to Christ and he had taken it and she was at peace with the Father. As Christians, we don't fear. We can now push into those those barriers and those boundaries that the world is constructed that says that we can't do this and we can't do that. We can go to anyone with, at any time that we don't fear what's going to happen because we know that we have something more powerful, that we have the spring of life in us as well. As we go out into the world, we can communicate that message of who Jesus is and it blesses those around us. Who is God calling you to go to? Where is he calling you to, to press into? We don't have to let the world tell us what we can and can't do. Our God is bigger than that. Our Lord is eternal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this story. I, I just feel like I always just scratch the surface on these things, that I never actually get where I need to get all the time. But Lord, I know that you have a message for the men and women here today that if we have called on you as our Lord and Savior, as the Christ, as the Messiah, 
that we also will have a spring that comes up in us, that there is living water, eternal life, that we can be made new, that we can be restored, that we can have purpose. Lord, if there are men and women here today that are, that are chained to some kind of guilt or shame or sin in their lives, they would lay that down at the foot of the cross with you today. They would know that they are forgiven, they have been made new. They would experience the peace that you offer. We love you, we pray this in your glorious name, amen.